I knew from the get-go that we wanted to make a film that was, I, I like to say, where you come in late and you get out early. We kind of throw the audience on this ride of zigs and zags and you don't really know where it's going. It ends in a very hard place, but a place of leaving the audience thinking. Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Joseph Kabota Ladaika is on the show. Joseph is a screenwriter, director, and producer. His episodic television credits as a director include the Netflix series Narcos, Narcos Mexico, and Animal Kingdom, among others. Joseph's most recent feature film, Catch the Fair One, which he wrote, directed, and produced, was released in select theaters and on VOD on February 11th by IFC Films. Executive produced by Darren Aronofsky and produced by Academy Award winner Molly Asher, Catch the Fair One stars Kaylee Reese, playing a former champion boxer who sets off on a dangerous quest into the criminal underworld of sex trafficking to find her kidnapped sister. A professional, world-class boxer in real life, Kaylee worked closely with Joseph to develop the story for this gripping thriller, which is also a commentary on the treatment of Native American women in our country and how their disappearances seem to go unnoticed. This is the second feature film for Joseph, who won the Tribeca Film Festival's Best New Narrative Director Award and is a star-making debut for Kaylee Reese, who received an Independent Spirit Award's Best Female Lead nomination for her performance. In this interview, we talk about how Joseph developed the story for Catch the Fair One with Kaylee over the course of several years, the challenges he faces as an indie filmmaker, and how he balances the need to earn a living through episodic television directing with his passion for developing indie films. Joseph also shares how he was hired to be the first American director of the Netflix series Narcos, and we do a deep dive into some of the choices he made in Catch the Fair One while managing to not mention any spoilers. As you'll hear me mention in this chat, Catch the Fair One is a solid thriller with an incredible debut performance from Kaylee Reese. You can watch it in select theaters now or on VOD. So without further ado, let's jump into my chat with Joseph Kubota Ladaika. Joseph Ladaika, welcome to Dream Path Podcast. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great honor, um, and I'm really happy to be here. Excellent. Well, we've got a lot of things to talk about. Your filmography is is fascinating. And I did watch a great interview with you on an indie film podcast that was on YouTube. So I learned a lot about you okay. already going into this. So hopefully I don't make you repeat yourself too much. But Catch the Fair One is coming out shortly. When is that going to be released? Um, it comes out uh, this Friday, February 11th. It's going to be playing in some theaters across the country and on, on VOD platforms the same day. So it's all released on the same day through IFC Films. Excellent. IFC is picking up a lot of great films this year. I know they... Yeah, it's been amazing working with them. Um, I've, I've really, really enjoyed working with them. And it's a great badge of honor, I feel like, because there's been so many incredible films that have been IFC films. Mm -hmm. And for me, like, you know, I've been in New Yorker 15 years now. I've been there 50. So I guess I can call myself New Yorker. <laughs> um, right on. And when I was in film school, you know, I went to NYU grad film. So we would just walk down Sixth Ave. And I remember just always looking up at the marquee, what's playing. Let's go in and watch, you know, in between classes and to have a film there. It's a long time coming, but um, <laughs> but it's a great honor and I'm, and I'm very happy about it. That's fantastic. 
You know, I, I watched this film without knowing how it came together yes. and how you founded the story and, and developed it. And as I was watching it, I was just really struck by how tight the film is mm. and how, and I don't say this about every film I see where I interview the guest who is a part of the film. I'm very careful about compliments. Mm -hmm. This is an extremely well-made film in terms of story logic you know, plot holes mm -hmm. or lack, lack thereof. <laughs> it just, I was like, wow, like an hour and 25 minutes, an hour and a half or so. And you just told this really tight story. But I think a less skilled filmmaker and someone who maybe came at it less organically than you did, yeah. this would be a two hour film or a two and a half hour film. Yeah. So my guess is you had to make some really tough choices. Yeah. That's a, you know, that's a great observation. You know, I mean, it's, um, yeah, a lot of it comes out of sort of practical necessity in a sense of we're independent film and, and, and you know, these types of films are really hard to make. So I knew from the get-go and working with Kaylee kind of as we were kind of figuring out the story and everything that we wanted to make a film that was, I, I like to say, where you come in late and you get out early. You know, we kind of throw the audience on this ride of zigs and zags and you don't really know where it's going um and we it ends in a very hard place but a place of leaving the audience you know thinking mm -hmm. and sort of that was always like the structure that we were working with in the parameters we put on ourselves you know i am very much drawn to films that um there's not a lot of exposition you know like uh it kind of just starts and you're kind of just dropped in the film and it and it just the audience is sort of going they're leaning in as it's taking place and right um some of the the filmmakers i uh, some of my favorite filmmakers are the dardenne brothers um um the belgian filmmaking duo who i just have such a great appreciation from their films because they're very much that you know they all the, the 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 plot is driven by the behavior of the characters you know and it and it, it really you just it starts and it goes and you know, everything is the exposition is the action, you know? And so exactly me and Kaylee kind of like working on this film, we kind of made that pact very early on. And also in the idea, in the sense of um, there's so much, you know, we collaborated on the story basically for two years. And in that two years, it was a process of preparing and getting ready for her to act in it. But also, you know, the things that we were learning about the topic and the issue was touching on and what she was learning on the grassroots ground level and kind of sharing it with each other. But there's just so much there and it's so complex. And we wanted to sort of whittle it down to sort of a very simple idea and all the feelings of regret and loss and, and, and rage and all that. We wanted to put it all on the shoulders of just this one character, this one warrior that we created mm -hmm. and kind of take an audience through that story. I'm glad that you mentioned the exposition and the, I guess, the paradigm that you approach the film with on exposition, because when I look back on it, I see just a couple of scenes there that are expository, if that's a word, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. but they're so efficient, like where Kaylee's with Kimberly Guerrero mm -hmm. and it's the setup for their relationship and, and provides a lot of motivation or explanation for Kaylee's motivation, right? Yeah. And why she's driven to do what she does. But it just seems like, you know, the effort that and skill that went into writing those scenes is someone who has a lot more years in the industry than <laughs> you have. So you, you really have an impressive work product here in terms of like just great storytelling, but done really efficiently. So well done. Oh, thanks. 
Okay. Okay. Well, I'll take that, uh, that, that compliment. That's, that's very kind. I mean, I feel I've only made two films. I've done like 16 hours of uh, episodic television directing, which obviously there's so much experience that you gain from that, that obviously helped me make this film as well. You know, it's all, it's all a rolling thing. And, and I still feel like I'm still learning and I still know what I'm doing. And that's the beautiful thing of the journey of, of being a filmmaker. You know, there's just one, there's no right, wrong, right or wrong way to do it. And two, there's just, it's never ending the different problems and stuff that you learn as you go along and you continue to make films. Mm -hmm. uh, and in that particular scene, you know, there was many different versions of that scene like on the page you know and we that was one that we really kind of rehearsed a lot and i worked a lot well before we were shooting um and we would change it and rework it and rewrite it and but it really wasn't it really wasn't until you know kimberly came on and we kind of talked about it a little and then we're shooting it and I, I have to give all the credit to kimberly she's such a giving actor that you know she really kind of was on the other end of it kind of giving a lot of stuff to kaylee to react to and the, the lines you know i mean some lines are there you know but also it was more like I just wanted them to try to kind of really just get in it a little bit, you know, um, and just kind of find what was happening in the actual moment. And that's 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 what ended up being there. But but it was through building a lot of trust with Kaylee to 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 kind of um, know that she can access that vulnerability. But it's funny because a lot of people point to that scene because really after that scene, many people who have watched the film say that it's sort of like you just smash on the gas pedal and it just goes, you know, right. So um, I guess it's like the set it off scene, you know, I mean, it's such, yeah. such a pivotal scene. And it's one, you know, when you're looking at your schedule of 20 days and like, you know, you particularly make sure that that one's in the right place, that you don't shoot too much stuff on that day, even though you don't have any time. So you're still going to shoot like four other scenes that day. But, um, but yeah. Yeah. Well, the thing I really appreciate about scenes like that is the facial expression on a great actor like Kimberly, where she's being told something that's like a hard truth that Kaylee feels. Yeah. And, and she, you can tell that there's, when I say a hard truth, I mean, it's probably a little piece of her Kimberly's character. Um, Jaya feels that, yeah. but doesn't want, doesn't want to admit it. So she doesn't say anything. Yeah. 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 And, and then again, it's a, uh, it's you're, exactly what you're saying like the whole idea of us when we were like constructing the script in a way was you know how do you just kind of sh show it all of what the relationship is and what the damage of having someone from the family be gone how do you just show that all in just this little like sit down you know and just really show like the complications of of, of that relationship and i think we did hopefully we did it you know uh um, I'm sure there's ways that it could have been better, but <laughs> right. Who was your editor on this? Um, the editor was uh, Ben Rodriguez Jr. He's a very, very good friend of mine. We went to film school together um, at NYU grad film. We were in the same class hmm. um, along with my two producers, fantastic, amazing producers, Molly Asher and Kimberly Parker, also in the same year of film school. So for me as a, as a, in, on my first film, you know, I worked with people from my class uh, you know, it's always that dream to collaborate with and come up with your classmates, you know, um, mm -hmm. and sometimes it's romanticized, you know, sometimes it's not a reality that you can do. Like, obviously, when I'm a episodic television director on a TV show, I can't bring anyone with me usually and so on. So although I did, I did get Ben hired on this, this uh, HBO show that I just shot in Japan, and he was the editor on it. And it was so it was just beautiful to because usually when you go in to do a, a television show, you don't know anyone, you know what I mean? And to, mm -hmm. and the editing is really intense because you have like four days per episode 
to and for our film we had months to edit it but to already have that shorthand with him was like so it was just great it was it was amazing um very talented editor he edited he he edits a lot of Paul Schrader's films hmm. um so he edited the card counter that just came out recently he edited yep. first reformed so really talented guy i mean we bicker and fight like a like a married couple all the time <laughs> um we really kind of <laughs> you know but um but what's great about it is because we like know each other. There's no, you know, we can be so honest. Yeah. And I, and I will say the pa- we finished shooting in 2019, um, right before the pandemic. So we weren't really starting post until 2020. So we had about maybe like a month and a half of editing in Lost Planet in Soho because he was like a he's a resident uh, editor there, mm-hmm. and uh, they allowed us to edit there. Big shout out to them. Um, but then the pandemic happened and it all went remote and, you know, finishing a movie all in post over Zooms and stuff is a very, um, I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, it's not the same. It's not the same as being in person with someone and yeah. going for a walk and getting up and walking around and, <laughs> you know, like, um, well, w- one more geek question about editing before we switch to the origin of this story and how you found it. What was the longest length of this film where, you know, you were, you were like, okay, it's done. We've edited it. And this is how long it is versus where it is now. Like, was there a two hour version of this film where you're like, it's, it's good, but it needs to be tighter. Um, I mean, as in any, uh, I mean, the film was never really that long because on the page, it was very tight, you know, um, going back to, for all the reasons about how we wanted to design the story and how to tell the story, but also, um, you know, we didn't want more pages or more days of working for month, more days of shooting that we don't have the money for. So, right. so it was never really a long film. I mean, certainly the first assembly, it was probably like, uh, I don't know, probably my guess is was like, you know, maybe 95 minutes or something like that. And as a director, I believe Scorsese said this, but like, if you look at your first assembly of a film and you're not sick, then something's wrong. <laughs> and, uh, and it's so true. Like, it is so painful to watch that first cut. It is just like, you want to like jump out a window. It's so, so painful. What is the, where does the pain come from? Like, what is the source of that pain? Well, you just, you just, well, number one, it's never going to be, first of all, it's not hitting on all cylinders. You know what I mean? So I think that that it takes a long time to, I think experienced, more experienced filmmakers can look at it and understand what they're looking at more. But I remember on my first feature film, I was so, but it was my first time going through it. I was so like, oh my God, this like. Monosucios, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I completely failed. Like this is. This is really bad, but it's supposed to be kind of bad. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then you look at what's there, you look at its strengths, and then you start dialing that in and working it. And then, you know, it doesn't have obviously all the score and the sound design and the mix and all that, all that stuff kind of, you know, adds to it as you're kind of whittling it down to what what the essence of what the final cut is going to be. So it was a little bit longer, but then, you know, after, after you know, the typical like screenings and showing people and all that stuff it, uh, you know, you start to get the feedback, which is also all very painful for, it's my least favorite part. I love editing. I love just me and one other person in a room. That part's great. But then when you got to start showing people and stuff, you know, it's just. (laughs) Are you watching them as they're watching it? Or how do you show your movies to people? Uh, Ben, Ben loves doing that. He loves sitting in the back. I don't know. You know, I, I, I've learned to put certain boundaries up for my own like mental sanity, you know, and I think 
it depends. Like sometimes I just won't sit, you know, I'll just go for a walk and then come back and then get the reactions. Cause it's just, it's just hard. I mean, this film in particular was, yeah. it was a five year journey, you know, they take so long to make. And so, and I'm really hard on myself. I'm really, really hard on myself. Like I could, I could talk to you for an hour about everything. I don't like the film about the film. I'm not going to do that, but, uh, but you know, yeah, I think it's part of my, my Japanese, um, you know, striving for perfections mm-hmm. <laughs> side of me, you know, um, that's that's great. Well, um, let's talk about the origin story of this film because it's really special. I know it because I've heard other interviews with you talking about it. Yeah. But I think my listeners would really appreciate knowing how you found this story and how you developed it and how it ended up on film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, obviously, I've uh, you know, there's I've said told this story so much, but I mean, I, I think like. I think the, uh, so in 2017, really what's kind of interesting about it is the sweet science of boxing is sort of what brought me and Kaylee together. That's sort of how I found her because I myself was getting really into boxing mm-hmm. and I found her through like a friend's boxing gym. But like, um, I was immediately just drawn to her because I mean, she's a legit, amazing world-class boxer. You know what I mean? Like just- You can tell and you can tell in the film. Yeah. yeah as an athlete, I have so much respect for athletes, you know, but also, you know, what I respected about her so much is she was using her platform to speak out on things that she really cared about and, and use it in her form of her own activism, you know, to bring things awareness to certain things. And at the time, you know, I was learning more and more about the MMIW and people crisis in North America and starting to just research that and was so taken aback by it because it was something that was so overlooked. And I know it's something that she was speaking out on and talking about. So I was like, you know what? there's something in my mind germinating. I have an idea, but let me meet up with this person. Let me see if we vibe. Let me talk to her. And then also, you know, there was just an inexplicable thing as a filmmaker. So I borrowed a camera and I drove up to Providence and I had my little DSLR DSLR, and I just started interviewing her and I just wanted to hang out with her and talk to her and then talk about some of these things. And, you know, I'm a filmmaker. This is how I work. You know, I have a germinating idea in my mind, but I like real people. I get inspired by real people. And I try to make films that touch on that are genre films, but touch on something, a bigger conversation, sort of building off my first film. And, you know, we immediately just, I mean, we're, we were like brother and sister immediately. I don't know what it was. It's one of those inexplicable things, but I think it's, uh, you know, being both OCD Virgos, being confused <laughs> kids, you know. Um, but there was this moment where um, she, because she's always in camp, she's always in training. I mean, this, this is the life of a boxer. And having hung out with her for two years and seeing the real dedication to that, I mean, that's a tough, it's a tough grind. But she was training for a fight and she was going to her boxing gym to like, you know, just hit the heavy bag and spar a little. And I was like, I, I'm, can I come? Can I come? Can I come watch? Can I, can I, I got to see this. I got to see this power. What does it sound like when she hits that bag? And, you know, she goes, we're in this archetypical gym with all these world champion boxing, all these strong, powerful dudes. And it's just her. And um, and she starts sparring with them. And it's just the inexplicable thing as a filmmaker, that image of her. I was like, OK, this I don't know exactly what this movie is, but there's there's something here. But yeah. And then, you know, I, I, I we started talking about the subject and what it, was ta- what it was touching on. And I had a little ideas of different things. And I just we just hung out. I was like, let's just spend some time together. And then I also was wondering, you know, curious in terms of like if she had any interest in acting and so on and so forth. So this again, this is over the course of a long time. And what was really important to me because she is such a, such a strong voice is I wanted to incorporate her into the story, into the collaborative process. And uh, yeah, and so we just kind of made this pack from, you know, from very early on, like, let's, let's try to go on this crazy journey. And, uh, 
and it's going to be a roller coaster. And, um, and yeah, so basically for like two years, like I was saying earlier, it was just a, a constant collaboration and a fluid whole thing kind of creating the whole process. And for me, like, um, you know, as a, as independent filmmaker, there comes a time where, um, you know, you, you kind of, you stop the creative writing process and all that, you know, and then you have to turn into the the car salesman, you know, and like go and, Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, convince people to give you money to make this film and so on and so forth. And for me, that's always a really, really difficult time. It feel, You don't feel like a filmmaker. You don't feel like you're making anything. But what's great about working with Kaylee and working with a really per- real person is at any point I can grab my camera, I can back- grab an actor and we can go and we can we can explore these scenes and rework these scenes and, and practice our acting and rewrite it and explore and. And it makes me feel like I'm being the filmmaker in that long period where you're just still trying. You don't know if you're going to be able to make the film or not. Mm-hmm. Gives you a little reprieve from the bullshit of exactly. You know, focusing on money to okay. Now this is what what it's all about. I'm a filmmaker. I'm not. I'm not a fundraiser. But you're wearing many hats as an indie filmmaker. So exactly. Yeah. I mean, exactly. Exactly. That's. It's all just part of the process. And there's some parts of it that you'll enjoy more and there's some that you won't. And yeah, but it's just being able to navigate all that really, you know? So during this five-year process of developing, shooting and rolling out the film, Mm -hmm. you're shooting Narcos in the meantime. I mean, you're doing episodic television Mm -hmm. uh, and we'll talk hopefully about that if we have time, because it's amazing the origin story of that, how you found that project, but sure, 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 of course. how is it that you can compartmentalize when you're working on like Narcos, a completely new endeavor for you intellectually and, and from a skill set standpoint, yeah. maintain the momentum of that project when you, you have to make a living as you're developing the story, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, exactly. That is, I mean, that is something that is the number one struggle that I'm trying to figure out in terms of my, my first film, Mano Susias, you know, it took a, basically six years to make if you include like start of idea to finally out and this one's five and they're, you're, you're, they're sort of your strange children that you gave birth to. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm constantly as a filmmaker, I just I don't it just takes so long. You know, I mean, I, I it's like it, it, you, you it, it, I'm trying to figure out how to, how to do it faster, but also, you know, keep that spark of initial excitement when you when you have when you want to make the film and you see it so clearly and for me when it starts to go off the rails is you know you you can't make a film by yourself so you still have to start inviting people over for dinner and and uh and building the team out and i'm just speaking you know honestly like i had to do that during this film because you know i had a nyu grad films a fantastic film program but it's also an expensive film program and i had all this debt so basically my whole career thus far has been juggling going between those two. So going and shooting for three months on a television show and then coming back and getting back up with Kaylee and sort of building, you know, the trust and all that. And and on top of it, you know, she's a world champion boxer. So she's training all the time. So I think that was one of actually, honestly, one of the greatest challenges. And there were times where I wanted to give up on the project, you know, and, and just not do it. But I think, um, you know, we, me, me and Kaylee's hearts were in the right place and we invested so much that you just kind of, you kind of find a way and luckily, but it literally had to be me, me saying in 2019, there's no TV directing this year. I cannot, we have to make the film this year. Right. That's it. Right. You know, and I've saved up enough money so I can take that risk. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think now I'm in a little bit of a different position. So I'm hoping that I'll be able to just Cause I want to, I want to, I want to make more films, man. You know, I want to, 
I, I want to make them faster and I, I'm still trying to find my voice and my way and all this stuff, you know, and I, I feel like um, the only way, you know, is by making, making films and, and failing and making mistakes and growing and learning, learn, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, they take five years, you know, each time. <laughs> right. Well, I, I, I'm guessing that there's only so much bandwidth any, any human being can maintain at any given time. And a five-year track is just not a sustainable thing if that's the only thing you're doing. Exactly. So it sounds like you've got to straddle multiple worlds here. You've got episodic television to pay the bills, but also probably is fulfilling, personally fulfilling in ways that have nothing to do with money because you're able to, you know- Practice your craft. Yeah, satisfy that need of just collaborating and getting shit done quickly, quick turnaround. Yeah in and out, um, but also directing films that maybe you haven't developed, that you just are handed a script. And do you have those opportunities now where you, you have this uh, film premiering and it's, it's a great film? So are you getting opportunities now to direct other people's projects that have been developed substantially? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, of course. I mean, I mean, that was there even after my first film, Manosusias, to a certain extent. Um, yeah. And absolutely, um, I think that um, uh, directing television, it's a great practice of the muscle. You, you know, you get to use, because all my films are very, I'm not going to say how much, but they're very low budget. They look like they're high budget, but I can assure you that there's not, uh-oh. <laughs> New York City? Uh, I'm actually, I'm in Philly. Me and Kaylee are together. She lives in Philly. And uh, we just wanted, since it's our last week and our last hurrah of the release of the film, we just wanted to do all our press together, like next to each other. So we're not like, because when you do the Zooms, like, you know, one after the other, after it's very intense. Right. <laughs> so got it. at least we're like next to each other and there's the human interaction and we can joke around in between. It, it just feels like the right way to bring the film home and out into the world. But um, what was I saying? I was saying, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of gifts in what you learn especially when you're directing something that you didn't write, you know, but there's also, you know, it's tough because sometimes you kind of have to direct something that it just doesn't align with sort of your taste and tone, but you gotta, you gotta do it because it's not your show. You know what I mean? I mean, the, ultimately yeah. television, it, it's really the showrunner's uh, vision in a way, you know, and, and unless you're doing the pilot, you're sort of coming in there and sort of honoring what 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 already has been established. You know, you don't want to rustle the feathers too much. Of course, you want to try to put an imprint on it and elevate it and make it better and all those things. But you're also kind of, you know, you're kind of like a substitute teacher in a way. But the skill set to learn how to shoot very quickly is amazing. And then working with, because I had never worked with like really experienced actors before. So learning what that's like and, and not building a years long relationship before I direct them. These are people that you just say, Hey, nice to meet you. Okay. Uh, I guess we're going to do this scene and you just get thrown into it, which was, it's a great gift to, it sort of was a crash course in understanding like how really experienced actors work, you know, which was great. Right. But in terms of the films, like, yeah, this, you know, a lot of scripts get sent to me. Um, and, you know, I've almost done some sort of bigger studio films, but I think I'm a little wiser now <laughs> in the sense of, um, for me, myself, you know, every individual artist's journey is different, you know, but I get the sense that I don't, I, I don't want to really step into that realm until I've built a little bit more of a body of work and made some more films on my terms so that when I do step into that world, people will actually listen to me. Yeah. Cause I, I'm, I'm very aware of, you know, this, the, the stories, there's, there's so many of them of like a little tiny filmmaker that made their little indie darling at this festival and they, 
were catapulted to this ginormous film. And sometimes that works out amazing and great, you know, and sometimes it's a, it's a total disaster. And I think for me, if I didn't write it, like I, I'm open to doing like an adaptation, but like, I think I, I'm realizing again, I'm still discovering this as I'm growing in my career, but I think I need to control the script because I've gotten so many scripts. The scripts that come to me have sort of been already hodgepodged. You can just, I can just diagnose it and tell, okay, this was attached to this director and this director, they did, all did their own passes on it. And then this other person, and you get like this sort of like uh, Frankenstein script and you can tell immediately when you read it, mm. that there's no like singularity to it. And it's a film that they've been developing and trying to make for years and years and years. So I usually can kind of see that coming. That said, if a script came across my table and I absolutely just, I saw it and I clicked with it and I was like, I can do this and I know I can do this really well. I'd, I'd probably do it, but I just, that has not come. And I think that's, and I don't know if that'll ever come. <laughs> right. Well, I I have a, a producer question for you. Darren Aronofsky mm -hmm. is uh EP on this movie. Mm -hmm. And you also have some great actors, character actors, Kevin Dunn, mm -hmm. Daniel Henshaw, mm -hmm. uh, Kimberly Greer, of course, and, and, um, and Lisa Emery. So what comes first? Does Aaron come first and because Aaron is Aaron, uh, you can get these big name character actors to come in and be attached or is it the reverse or how did you cast this film? Sure. Sure. Um, well, I think, um, I mean, obviously having Darren and Protozoa on board is an amazing, amazing compliment. He's a legendary, iconic filmmaker. I love his films. The Wrestler is one of my all-time favorite films. Mine too. They came in a, a little bit later, you know, when we we're closer to shooting and, you know, they basically got on board. It, again, it was one of those things where I was just having a general meeting with them and they're like, well, what are you working on? And I'm like, oh, you know, I have this film, with it, but the, it's a professional fighter and I've been working on it for a year. You're not going to be interested in it. That's usually how I talk about it because usually people aren't, but they're like, oh no, that sounds cool. And I think, um, you know, at this point, I try to build like the arsenal of stuff to show people. So a lookbook, the script, but then like I've been working with Kaylee and I, to prove that she can act, I've been shooting scenes with her look, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I think uh, for Darren, I think it was once he saw Kaylee, it wasn't necessarily about the script or all like, but once he saw her and saw the, mm. the power of her, right. uh, I think he was on board. He's like, this is a female Mickey Rourke. <laughs> like Maybe. <from> the, <laughs> no, not no, no, there. But there are parallels, though, in, in the story between the wrestler and um, and this, you know. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I'm glad you mentioned all those actors, because I think that that's they, they, they need to be shown a lot of love. You know what I mean? Like a film like this doesn't get made without them, too. And they're taking a big risk right. coming on board to do this film with a professional fighter who's not a professional actor, you know, they're taking a big leap of faith and they're kind of what pushes it over the edge to get the film actually greenlit and made, you know? Right. And so it's, you always need, like, you need that. And there's, you need those stories. So really there's always like certain moments in a film where like something happens and then it seems like, okay, things are really getting legit and moving forward. And I have to give a lot of props to uh, Daniel Henshaw because he was really the first actor to kind of come on board and say, I'll do this film. Mm. And again, it's not like um, that all came from a personal relationship um, because he lives in Brooklyn and one of my friends who's an actor kind of put us together and we just became friends like playing basketball and all this stuff. But mm -hmm. in the back of my mind, I mean, I saw Snowtown Murders and, and that his performance in that is literally to me, it's one of the most incredible performances. I mean, it's terrifying, mm -hmm. but one of the most incredible performances I've ever seen in my life. So I remember us meeting in the coffee shop and I sent him the script and just to see if he would consider it, you know, and um, 
he's a generous, generous, lovely person. He was just like, let's do it. And then again, it's like, let's build this character. Let's, let's really think it was a collaboration. And once he came on board, that gives the confidence in other people to see, you know, he's not like a super famous actor, but he's an amazing actor. And so that, you know, helps bring confidence to bring those other people in. And I had a fantastic casting director in New York, uh, um, Allison Swadziak, who was, who was also helping with all this and helping us get to those people. So it was really, um, yeah. It was just, I guess, a lot of things falling into place. But again, I want to say how important it is for those because they're not making a lot of money. You know, I'll just be honest that right. they don't do this film because of the money. So them being a part of it, it, it's so important that actors do that and they don't have pride and be like, oh, I'm not the star. I'm not, you know, because that was a lot of it in terms of trying to fill that role of, of Bobby. Like, oh, we need a huge star because that's going to give us the financing. Um, and Daniel, it's, he didn't he didn't care about any of that. You know what I mean? Yeah. He, he's, he saw the totality of what we were trying to do. And he was like, I'm in. Yeah. And, and, and as, as filmmakers, it's just so, it's a breath of fresh air to see that there are uh, actors willing to do that. As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place. Our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com slash newsletter to join. It's not fancy, just an email about each week's episode featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Now, back to the interview. Yeah, I thought it was great. What Bobby brought to the film for me was he has this clean-cut image, but he has this darkness and this evil lurking below the surface. But again, talking about exposition, it took one scene to understand why he would not give up the information that mm -hmm. he was being asked to give. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was that the scene between him and his dad, you know, where yeah, yeah, yeah. he gets, uh, you know, I'm not going to say too much about it, but there's, there's one pivotal scene. I think that's what's so brilliant about your style is you can just have one scene and it can be really short and it sets up so much and explains so much and it gives you so much freedom to go to the next step in the story without having a plot hole. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, just, it's funny you mentioned that because I'm just trying to remember because, you know, making a film, it's a, it's a, it's an, it's an army of people. And, you know, I think a lot of times directors, they get all the credit and they shouldn't, you know, or they get all the blame and maybe they necessarily shouldn't if a movie's bad. But what the thing you're particularly talking about, I'm almost, I have to, you know, there's so many iterations and it's been so long and COVID brain fog, but I'm pretty sure that note that you just said actually came from my editor, Ben, as I was sharing the script with him early on, this is before we even shot it and everything. So there you go. You know, you never, you never, that's just, I guess, a way of saying like, it's great to have people around you that you trust and that will give you ideas and input in the creative process. I'd like to ask you about a couple of other scenes and I'm going to try not to give away anything in terms of spoilers. Sure. But there are some devices in the film that I'm wondering if they were intentional. I assume they were, but th there's the choke out scene at the beginning mm -hmm. where she's, you know, sparring and is getting choked out. And then there's a, another scene and toward the end, a choke out scene. Yeah. But were, are those, was that intentional as a screenwriter and as a filmmaker to bookend those? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Of course. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, um, even to the way you can tell like the setups and the shots and were leading to sort of the same frame. Yeah. So absolutely. Yeah. 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 That was, um, that was definitely <laughs> intentional. It's brilliant. I love it. 
And that's what's so fun. It's like, I don't know if you call those Easter eggs or what, but there's just like little payoffs in the movie that yeah. I really enjoyed. Well, thank you. Yeah, another scene that really resonated with me was when Kaylee was with a bunch of sex trafficked victims and there's this light uh-huh. coming down and it seems angelic, you know, mm. but were there, you know, religious overtones that you were going for there? It was just a beautiful scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so funny you mentioned that because like, I'm not a religious person at all and I'm no way a theologian. I don't know my my religion very well. And it's, I, I think there's a sort of happy accident in term, because, you know, talking with the DP and talking with Kaylee, you know, there was, a, we were always like kind of reflecting on memories and, and trying to remember someone. And, you know, she has like these hyper flashes of remembering her, her sister throughout the film. And it sort of creates this sort of dreamlike tone. And then something about that scene when it all comes to a head with the cinematography and the score and everything that's happening in that moment. Yeah, it's sort of weirdly, you're not the first to mention this. It sort of transcends the reality of it for a second. Yeah. And I think a lot of it has to do with uh, how Ross lit it and how we kind of staged it and how that wide shot with the with the the light coming down. I mean, it, it was it was beautiful. So, uh, you know, I got to give a lot of props to him. Maybe he was thinking something like that. <laughs> right. I was just thinking, ah, we don't have any time left. We got to go. We got to go. Gotta go. <laughs> That's all I was thinking about. <laughs> and I hate to dive too much into the minutia of the filmmaking decisions that you made, but there's another scene that was really satisfying too, where there's a knife on the counter where Bobby puts a knife on the counter and then yeah. you flash back and the knife's gone. Mm-hmm. And it just says so much. Like you don't even have to show where Kaylee is. Yeah, yeah. Or, or you just you know so much by this shot of a knife. Yeah. Cuts to something else. You come back and the knife is gone. Yeah. And so, where do you learn those types of techniques? Is that something they teach in school in terms of like the formula, the ingredients of a thriller, or is that just something that comes from your gut, or hmm. how does that come together? I mean, I'm sure it's a combination of all that stuff, watching lots of films, obviously, and uh, yeah, learning the craft, learn, learning how to dramatize things. Um, but it's funny you mentioned that because, you know, I'm, I'm very hard on the film. There's parts of the film that I can't, you know, well, it's hard for me to just watch the film in general, but mm-hmm. there's parts that I, I enjoy watching, parts I don't, you know, because I see all the mistakes and all. But that particular sequence, um, for me, directorially, Really, kind of everything at Bobby's house. I feel I I I feel I I enjoy that part only because I think the actual like craft of of filmmaking, the visual grammar and all that tension is it's just fun to play in that sandbox as a director mm-hmm. and you feel the audience. You, you know, we know Kaylee is somewhere. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so it's just kind of, you know, it's almost, it can harp back to Hitchcock if you want, you know what I mean? It can be, you know, the knife is there, knife is there. There's so many different things, but sort of building those types of sequences where there's no dialogue, I just love. Mm. Enjoy, enjoy, enjoy. Love that so much. I think the most, I can't, I had a, I have a legendary act, uh, not acting, writing uh, professor at NYU. His name's Mick Cassell. He's been there forever. And he said, um, sort of the most dramatic moments or the most engaging moments of a film are when we the audience know something that that the act uh, the character on the screen doesn't know and and that can be applied to any type of storytelling whether it's this particular scene that you're talking about or even like two characters that are in love but we know one person is in love with the person and the other character doesn't know that that person's like you know it, it applies to right. anything 
But I think that that's what real drama, where it really comes from as part of the cinematic experience. Right. Another question I have pertains to the concept that this is, in my opinion, a superhero movie, except that she's more flawed than... I think there's a trend with superhero episodic television like Peacemaker, which is great on HBO, where they really dive deep on the flaws of the superhero Mm -hmm. to make them more relatable and and funny or whatever. So here we have Kaylee's characters extremely flawed, but also there's no reason for her to be skilled in, you know, in what she's trying to do in this film. So how did you balance the need to have her be this incredible protagonist slash superhero where she's, you know, it's a revenge film in a way uh, where she's accomplishing amazing things, but also having it be realistic because she has limitations. You know, she's not a soldier. She's not a trained marksman, Yeah, yeah. um, but she does have the skill set of fighting, which is helpful. But how did you straddle those lines? Yeah. I mean, man, I I mean, we just got really, because everything you're describing there, I think we got really lucky because there's a fine line that we were kind of walking there in terms of you don't want it to turn into John Wick or Jason Bourne or some shit like that. You know what I mean? Right. But also she is a powerful, strong fighter, you know, and, um, and I think, you know, I I had an amazing uh, stunt coordinator, Chaz Mendez to kind of like help us you know, things needed to feel primal, physical first, you know, messy, but contained and controlled in, in terms of the, the way we were photographing it, you know what I mean, to fit sort of the style of the film. Mm-hmm. And I think it just it just came from that. And it also came from Kaylee being the cl- creative collaborator on it. And, you know, like I said, I always wanted her input in everything. So I wasn't, a lot of it would come from like, you know, what would you really do in this situation? You know what I mean? Like, as opposed to planning some beautifully choreographed, like action fight, you know, like, um, and so that's how we kind of towed that line. But it's, it's interesting because that's what, um, I don't know that I, I'm very grateful for. We managed to, it's not like hyper stylized, like action. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's still grounded, but it's not like verite, verite sort of like really super, super grounded realism. You know what I mean? In a way, like, right. So, um, and it's funny, you mentioned like the superhero stuff, because in my mind, that's what it it goes back to that image I saw of her in the ring sparring with those dudes. Like, you know, I was like, this is a real life superhero. (laughs) (laughs) She is. She's amazing. And her acting skills too, it's like, you you just don't see that coming from a first time actor, storyteller. Yeah. Yeah. So one last question about the film itself and a particular scene, the very last frame of the film, and I'm not going to say anything about it beyond that, but the very last frame, and I mean literally the last frame, it's pretty stunning and revealing Uh and and powerful. So did you audience test the movie without that last frame? What were your thoughts with that last frame and without spoiling the movie, of course, because I think it just really made the film special. Oh, so, uh, man, it's, um, man, how do I even, how do I do this without saying the spoilers? I mean, what I'll say is the ending, me and Kaylee always knew what we wanted the ending to be. You know what I mean? In terms of, I'll just say, keeping it real <laughs> for the sake of that. Okay. And I'll be honest, you know, like, you know, it's a long process of making a film and people who want to help you make the film, you know, they have ideas and, 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 you know, and you just get to a point where you're desperate and you're trying to get your film made, you know, so maybe you'll change some things. Maybe you'll make the ending a little bit lighter. And there, so there was, there was that, but 
all I'll say is what ended up being the final thing was what Kaylee and I always wanted it to be. And it's probably more on me for making concessions and getting more voices in my head that I shouldn't have. Like, it's going to be too dark. It's going to be too this and that and so on and so forth. Right. But um, the final frame and and making that it, we, it it was through the process of showing the cuts to people, you know, and um, all I'll say is um, uh, one of my classmates, who's my really good friend is the director Shaka King. Um, who directed the amazing film Judas and the Black Messiah. Mm. He so we watched the film and then we called and got on the phone. This was with not our original ending, right? <laughs> and uh, and so we were talking about the film and I could tell that like the ending just wasn't really landing for him. So then I told him, well, what if it was this? And he was like, Joe, what are you doing? You got to do that. <laughs> you got to do that, that, that ending. <laughs> And then we did it. And then I started showing like my friends and my trusted colleagues, you know, and it's so amazing how it just suddenly made it all click in a very, very specific way, you know? Um, And again, I mean, I I guess that's the beauty of, it's hard to like, you know, you got to get the feedback, you got to get eyeballs on it and it's painful, but through that process always, it's just part of the process and the journey, you know? Right. Beautifully articulated without spoiling the end. So <laughs> yeah. well well done. You really thread that needle there. But yeah, the way I felt with that last scene is like you're kind of in one place and then the last scene, the last frame is up and it kind of hits you and it kind of spins you around. Yeah. And then you're back where you're started and you're going, okay. All right. It does click. It's a very clickable moment in the film. And congratulations on such a great, you know, a great piece of art. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Do you have time to talk about narcos? Sure. Yeah. Narcos is one of my favorite television shows. And I saw that you directed like five episodes or so, five or six episodes. Mm-hmm. And I heard on a previous interview that you were the only gringo director <laughs> of that uh, television series. So tell me how that came about and what you had to learn to get up to speed and what you learned in the process of making that show. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I consider it a great honor to be the only uh, American director to work on that show. Um, the other directors are are incredible. Amat Escalante, Andy Baez, um, uh, just the, 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 they were very always adamant about bringing some of the best top talent um, uh, actors. I mean, I'm sorry, directors from from Latin America. And, um, and these are like filmmakers that I really, really have a lot of respect for. So, yeah, I mean, it, it basically came to be because of my first film, Manosucias, which was a tiny, tiny little film that I shot in Buenaventura, Colombia. And um, one of my Colombian producers on that film um, is very good friends with Andy Baez, who's a Colombian filmmaker, Colombian director. And he was the producing director on Narcos for, he's been up for the, every, the whole, the whole, the whole long journey. And he's from Cali, Colombia which is near Buenaventura. And like, you know, I, sp- I spent a long time in Colombia, like backpacking and traveling and researching, and I can speak a little Spanish. And like, we just, we immediately got along. But before we even met, he had watched my film and really, really loved it. And then he showed it to Eric Newman, the showrunner of Narcos. And yeah, and then I interviewed with them and, <laughs> you know, and, and, and he told Eric to watch the film. And I think, you know, there's some elements of the filmmaking in my first feature being in 
because we sh- and what one thing that's really great about narcos is you know we're shooting in practical real locations it's sort of like one of those you know you're not on a sound stage a lot you're out in the real elements and that's all my first film was you know it was a whole crazy heart of darkness crazy mil- movie to make but um crash course yeah yeah um and so um yeah i mean i was so that's you know i interviewed with them and you know i just talked about my experience and and knowing what it's like to shoot in colombia because i had made a whole film there and yeah and then the before i knew it i was on a plane going down to shoot uh some middle episodes of this ginormous <laughs> television show <laughs> and i was uh just in way over my head you know but i mean at the same time like yeah you learn by by doing you know so and they they probably have a lot of people who are fixtures in that show who are like oh here's another director you know let's yeah let's get him up to speed and this is what we need to show him Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how it is a lot of the times, you know, when you, especially if you're coming in to do middle episodes of a show, you know, the, the machine is already in place, you know, so you're sort of coming in there. But the one thing that was so special about Narcos to be my first one was it was sort of an unconventional, now having done lots of other shows, you know, it was an unconventional show. And I really got to give a lot of credit to Eric because he was a, he was a showrunner that really empowers the filmmakers. You know, he, he's not super precious with like the script and stuff. He allows us to kind of push. And that's why he went and found all these interesting directors. Cause he knew that we would try to bring something more to it and bring a different like cinematic language to it and try things. And he, he encouraged that, which, you know, that's not always necessarily the case in television directing. So for me, it was just, yeah, I just got really lucky with that sort of combination in the team that I was paired with from my first AD to my DP, uh, to my production designer, like they were just very patient with me and really, really helped me, you know, learn. And, um, you know, there was no dumb questions, you know? <laughs> so. What did you take with you from that process, that Narcos experience that you still have today that you use as an indie filmmaker? I mean, again, definitely, you know, the biggest, the biggest, uh, for me, it's funny because all the filmmaking stuff, you know, like a crane shot, a steady cam, a drone, you know, that's all like that, that. That's all comes easier because I studied filmmaking in a way, you know, um, it really was you know, the biggest educational part for me was working with the actors, because at that point I had never my first film. I had, you know, rehearsed for six weeks with the, the main people in my film before we were shooting. And in television, you don't, you don't have that. You don't rehearse at all. Yeah. You know, you don't know them. You don't really know the actors. Maybe you'll go and have a lunch with someone and talk. So, um, and I was lucky to work with, I mean, I mean, Pedro Pascal is like, forget about it. He's such an amazing, amazing ask actor. And just being able to work with him and, and see how he works. It was very, you know, it was very educational. Wagner Mora, who played Pablo, was just, the sweetest, most generous um, actor. And it was really a great, the, the energy and vibe of that show was really a great first soiree into television because it was a very warm, loving sort of atmosphere. Mm-hmm. But what that basically taught me in, is like how to work with different type of actors that work different ways, highly trained actors, you know? And sometimes you can overthink stuff, but really the actors come in and you work out the pl- blocking and all this stuff like, you know, in the moment and you might discover and find something better and because of the nature of television. You have to work so quickly. It, you learn how to be a little bit more mobile in the moment. Mm-hmm. And so that certainly helped with catch the fair one because Kaylee was, um, you know, she's not, she wasn't a quote unquote professional actor, but you know, uh, Kevin Dunn and Lisa and, and, and all of them, 
the sense of like they come day before and they show up on set and we just we just start doing it. I wouldn't feel comfortable doing that, you know. Thanks for diving in on Narcos because it's just one of my all-time personal favorite shows and one of the reasons I love it is every scene has a movie star in it. <laughs> yeah. Like th these are like real legit in terms of, you know, okay, they may not be household names in America. Yeah. But they are like Wagner Mora, for instance. I mean, huge international yeah, yeah, yeah. star. The amount of star power that you had to work with, I imagine it was like being spoiled as, you know, a new episodic television director. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was. And again, I was really lucky. And I was also really lucky that they were all very um, kind and trusting, you know, uh, when I first met Wagner, we were scouting and we went to go scout when they were shooting that day. Andy was shooting that day and he came up to me and gave me a big hug. And he had seen my film Manosucias and had all these questions. And he he's a director, too. So there was just immediate like, oh, this is it just put me at ease, you know, because I didn't know what I was getting myself into at all. And he was just amazing to work with. I just can't tell you how amazing the, the, his instrument, the little tweaks you can do and such a gentle, gentle, kind soul, you know, there were with him in particular, you know, I, we just had, I don't know if it's because we're similar souls or something, but we just had a, a connection in a shorthand that was, that was really wonderful. And I really, really enjoyed. And I, I've always, you know, we're still friends and stuff. And I'm always like, man, I wish we got to find something to, to make together, you know, because I just, he's, he's such a special actor. He's like the Christian Bale of South America. You know, he can just yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, pack on like 40 pounds for a role and just like, all right, let's do this thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, in Brazil, he's huge, you know, he's, he's like their biggest star. But like I said, also such a good person, a good human being. Yeah. Well, Joseph, it's been wonderful to hear your story. And I do want to ask one last question about productivity before we sign off here. The reason I'm asking you this question is I looked for you online. I looked for, you know, what your online presence is and didn't see a lot. Didn't see a lot of social social media stuff. And that's probably a good thing, especially if you're trying to get shit done in this world. Yeah. What is your approach to creativity and productivity as it relates to the distractions that we are faced with every single day in terms of social media, the news and those types of things? Oh, well, I mean, listen, that's a great, that's a great question. That's a very loaded question. I feel like we could talk about that for hours. Um, I'll just speak for, for me personally, you know, everyone, every individual person is different and some people thrive with social media and they really know how to use it and all that stuff, you know, and I was on it for a while. Um, but it really wasn't until the pandemic where just for me personally, I was, it was very, I was very self-aware that this was not good for me. This is not good for my soul. It's just, it doesn't bring out the best in me. And so, you know, I just basically closed it all down because very much what you're saying, like, rather than just kind of like sitting down and reading a book, you know, you'll just, I'll just, before you know it, I will have just stared at Instagram for an hour, you know, or there's a real thing that I feel like social media is really causing people to not live presently, you know, not be in the present moment. And, um, and I, and, and I, I understand that there's positive and negatives to it as well, but just for me as a creative person, it was very paralyzing. Um, I feel, I feel like it, it's very paralyzing just for me. I just need to go out and travel and I need to watch movies, watch movies in the theater, you know? And I feel like, um, if you get sucked into that, especially as an artist, it's just a really hard time to be an artist as well, you know? Um, because with 
rotten tomatoes and all this stuff. Like, it's like, it's a terrifying to put a piece of art out, you know, in the nineties, you know, there was maybe like, I don't know, 15 critics that would review your film. Now you suddenly have hundreds and hundreds of people reviewing your film. And, and for me, I'm really sensitive and it's, and it's really, you take stuff personally. So I know that like, I have to really put up a lot of boundaries for that stuff and keep the focus on the work, Yeah, you know, what is the work, you know, and it's getting up every day and trying to write and trying to make a movie and try to keep working on the craft and watch movies and, and also just experience and live life, you know? Yeah. Well, that's a great answer. And it's, it's odd because in a way, when I ask a question like that, I kind of already know the answer, Yeah, but I just don't want to accept it. <laughs> I, what I want to hear is, oh, you know, I'm on, I'm on Twitter two hours a day and it's, it's great. I'm still able to get, you know, get a bunch of shit done. But the answer is no, it's, it's, we all know it's not where you need to be if you're going to be productive and creative and be personally fulfilled. But it's nice to hear it articulated the way you did. But I wish you and Kaylee and your whole film crew all the best in the launch of this movie, Catch the Fair One. Really a pleasure hearing your story, Joseph. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. And thank you so much for having me and taking the time to watch the film. I really appreciate it. Hey, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always, go find your dream path. <laughs>